0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, we'll look at verse 19 and what follows. The head of the Roman Catholic Church, his name is Pope Francis, the man is an evil man. This is a man who claims divine enlightenment from God, and he leads the only church, in air quotes, only church of Jesus Christ, in which he provides spiritual guidance to an estimated 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in this world. The spiritual guidance of Pope Francis took another radical, anti-God, anti-Bible turn this past week when Pope Francis, according to the Associated Press, criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as unjust, saying that God loves all his children just as they are. Does God love all his children just as they are? My understanding of sanctification is that You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and you have to become like Christ. You're going to become sanctified like Christ over the course of your life. The pontiff called on the Roman Catholic bishops who support anti-gay laws to welcome LGBTQ people into the church. PBS, the public broadcast system, reported that Pope Francis said these anti-gay bishops have to go through a process of conversion, and added that these bishops should apply tenderness, please, as God has for each one of us. He said, the Pope did, being homosexual isn't a crime. According to pbs.org, Pope Francis is well known for reaching out to the LGBTQ community. It's a hallmark, they say, of his papacy, starting with his famous 2013 declaration, who am I to judge, when he was asked about a purportedly gay priest. Francis has gone on to minister repeatedly, they say, and publicly, to the gay and transgender communities. The head of the Roman Catholic Church, 1.3 billion people, a worldwide audience. Brothers and sisters, who are the religious authorities who are confronting this charlatan and heretic? Where are the men of God who know the word of God and can articulate the expectations of God, which prove that this man, Pope Francis, is himself a fraud? Is it really the case that Pope Francis will continue to unrighteously influence 1.3 billion Roman Catholics and the whole world as to his understanding of what pleases God? In a sin sick world, the answer is yes. That's going to continue to happen. But I would have you know unequivocally that God is not pleased with this man. Pope Francis is a deceiver, he's a manipulator and a liar from whom all Roman Catholics must be warned, so they can run. Someone needs to ask the Roman Pontiff, biblically speaking, sir, who are you? Who are you? This is a great question, this question, who are you? It asks you to identify yourself, explain your existence, explain the efforts and the actions that you undertake. Not only is this a great question for heretics like Pope Francis, To be made to answer, moreover, this is a great question for you and for I to consider. Friends, with all the love and kindness, grace and truth that I can offer you, my job demands that I ask you today, who are you? Who are you? Of greatest concern and interest is not whether you are tall or short, black hair, blonde hair, red hair, long hair, short hair, married, single, child or adult. Of greatest concern is the question about your identity. Who are you eternally? Who are you in the mind of God? Do you know? How do you relate to God's promised Messiah? Are you for this promised Messiah or are you against Him? Do you know the Lord's Christ? How do you know Him? What's His name? Do you confess Him with your mouth? You've turned to John 1.19 where the Apostle John has just finished his prologue where he powerfully declares Jesus is God. You cannot understand John's gospel without beginning with this idea in the first 18 verses that John is presenting Jesus is God. He is co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John answer the question, Who is he? And the answer is, he, Jesus, is God. The only way to make sense of the rest of his gospel is for you to know this first. Jesus is God. John is going to explain the life of Jesus in 21 chapters. He's going to hang the life of Jesus onto seven signs that prove to you Jesus is God. And the only way that the signs prove Jesus is God is if you understand from the beginning. John has declared Jesus is the eternal God able to make these things happen. And on the way to these signs, John provides confessions He provides declarations. He provides identification recorded by the Apostle John that tell us that many people believed in Jesus. Many people believed that he is the Son of God. And many people on this journey through these seven signs confess with their mouths Jesus is God. This is John's goal in his gospel, which he records in John 20, 30, and 31 where he says, therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples. Many signs which are not written in This book. But these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John the Baptist believed in Jesus and he knew the answer to the question when it was presented to him Who are you? Who are you? He was the last Old Testament believer who believed in and was a prophet for the Messiah. His whole life was consumed with this task, bear witness to Jesus Christ as Yahweh's Messiah. John was chosen by God for this specific work, which required delivering the hated words of repentance into a religious and hostile world. You're in John 1.19, where I ask you to read with me the testimony of the apostle John, who writes, verse 19, and this is the witness or testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Therefore they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself?" He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal." These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 29. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. We've already discussed that John's gospel begins with a Genesis theme, if you will. And where does John's gospel appear to begin with a Genesis theme? You go back to John 1.1, you see it there in the text, where John says, in the beginning was the word. This phrasing is the exact same phrasing found in Genesis 1.1, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It seems here in our text, as we move past John's prologue and into his narrative portion, that John desires to keep his Genesis theme going. We see this in the words, on the next day. You see that in verse 29. James Montgomery Boyce notes that no other gospel, none of them are are marked, do the marking of the passing of time so clearly as the Apostle John. Edward Klink says, this text is given direction by the designation of days, which guide the reader through the first week of Jesus' ministry. It might throw your mind back to Genesis, which is also marked out by the word yom or day. The general consensus of Bible scholars is that the wedding feast of Cana is Day seven of the first week of Jesus' ministry is recorded by John. However, scholarly interpretations on these seven days are not all in agreement on days specifically four, five, and six, which is to say that there's a little latitude given from one scholar to another as how they arrive at seven days, but they all land on the seventh day is the wedding feast at Cana. The main point is this, John keeps his Genesis creation week narrative alive, by his intentional chronological ordering of the narrative events in chapter one, saying in verse 29, on the next day. In verse 35, on the next day. In verse 39, they stayed with him that day. In verse 43, on the next day. And then you arrive at chapter two, verse one, and you see on the third day, and this is the wedding feast at Cana. It took me a little while to see the seven days, I'll admit. I got held up on that third day comment in chapter two, verse one which I've seen can be reconciled by viewing it as the third day after Nathanael's confession. There's a day of transit there to get the men into Cana. And as a result, I've come to agree with the scholars, it does appear that there are seven days in view. John is keeping his Genesis theme alive in the daily chronology of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And yet it is not John's chronology, friends. It's not the chronology that keeps the text alive. Inasmuch as the life of the text is found in the confessions of Christ captured by the Apostle John. I count eight confessions of Christ in these seven days, which end with Jesus changing water into wine in Cana. I've grouped them into four confessions from John the Baptist, three confessions from the disciples, and a confession given by his mother Mary. So we work through the text of John, chapter 1, I want you to be very mindful that John wants to share powerful confessions of Jesus Christ day by day as they unfolded during the first week of his ministry. What was the result of one full week of a ministry of confessions and a sign at the wedding feast of Cana? Well, you see the results if you look at chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 2, 11, John says, Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. That's the whole point of the gospel right there. belief That's what you need to arrive at as well in reading these stories and understanding Jesus' life and ministry. We should be interested in the confessions that come out of the mouths of men. The confessions are important in this text. Chapter 1. We should be very, very interested in the confessions that come out of the mouths of men. That is exactly why I started this message with my comments about the Roman Catholic pontiff. Let's move to some other comments. Whether men are confessing rebellion to God, like President Joe Biden, who in April of 2021, in a speech to a joint session of Congress and a nationally televised audience to millions of people, millions of Americans, he said this. He said, President Biden did, to all transgender Americans watching at home, especially the young people, you're so brave. I want you to know your president has your back." Or whether men are confessing the righteousness of God. Like former Super Bowl champion and Indianapolis Colts head coach Tony Dungy, when he spoke last week at the March for Life in Washington, D.C., where he said to a crowd who oppose abortion, he said to them, God answers prayer, and he will answer our prayers to save these precious unborn lives. Words matter. The confessions of men are significant. What you use your mouth to do matters. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. I hope you understand how critical this text is. This text matters not just when we're talking about other religious leaders or leaders of our nation This text matters in your marriage. This text matters with your children. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The confessions of men are the focus of the apostle in John chapter 1, who begins with the witness, the testimony, the confessions of a man named John the Baptist. In verse 19, he says this, And this is the witness of John that is John the Baptist. Martyria is the Greek word for testimony or witness. And if it sounds familiar, it's because our English word martyr comes from this Greek word martyria, which means to bear witness, to give testimony or to provide evidence. Martyria is an important word to the apostle John. He uses it 75 times in 21 chapters. Very interested is he in witnessing, testimony, confession. It's one of his favorite terms. In John's prologue, he highlights the life of John the Baptist by using this word martyria, the noun, and martyreo, the verb, to tell his audience John the Baptist was born for this very purpose, to witness. You see that in John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, martyria, to martyreo, to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to martyreo to bear witness about the light. What do we need to know about John the Baptist to understand the nature of his witness for the word? Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? Mark chapter 1. God had always spoken to Israel through the prophets right up through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. The Lord used these men to attempt to bring prominence back to Israel by way of their national obedience to God's word. This is after their rebellion and their reinstatement in Israel. And yet, after being reinstated to Israel, after they were sent out and brought back, Israel was not obedient. Once these three men had died, Israel suffered 400 years of divine silence from God. No prophets. He did not send a prophet to them after Malachi until John the Baptist came with a message of repentance in AD 30. Luke chapter 1 records that John the Baptist was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both righteous in the sight of God, according to Luke 1. Elizabeth was barren, you'll remember, no children. So the Lord sent the angel Gabriel to tell Zechariah that his wife would conceive and give a son. Gabriel didn't come in a dream. He visited Zechariah when he was entering the temple to perform the priestly ministry. During this once-in-a-lifetime moment for this man, Zechariah, of entering the holy place and burning incense to the Lord on behalf of the whole nation, at this moment, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah while he was doing his job, and he told him that Elizabeth, his wife, would have a son who would be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in utero, and they were to call his name John. Zechariah expressed at that moment enough unbelief that at Gabriel's words, that he was made mute as a sign that the prophecy was true. When we consider the events surrounding John the Baptist's conception, you can't help but notice how sovereign God is over all of the affairs of man. God knew John the Baptist before he was conceived, and God sent John the Baptist into the world at a particular time, to a particular dad and mom, with a particular message for the world. John MacArthur says the ancient world had seen many great men, Alexander the Great, Socrates, Augustus Caesar, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, but the greatest of them all was an improbable candidate by human standards. John the Baptist had the most important and elevated task in history to announce the arrival of the Messiah. He goes on to say, Israel had been waiting for four centuries for God to send them a prophet So John's dynamic, forceful preaching stirred up an enormous amount of interest in Israel. The ministry of this last Old Testament prophet was so important that all four Gospels record the life of John the Baptist. You've turned to the Gospel of Mark at chapter 1, which opens up with an account of the ministry of John the Baptist. It seems that you cannot talk about Jesus' life unless you first talk about this man, John the Baptist. How does Mark describe the ministry, then, of John the Baptist? What do we have from Mark here in Mark chapter 1? In Mark 1, we read, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is also quoted in all four gospels. Verse 4 says this, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the region, that is, all of the region of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now first, let me ask you, as you see that text in front of you, does all always mean all? What do you see in the text there? You see verse 5, all the region of Judea, all the people of Jerusalem. Is that the case? Did every single individual in the region of Judea and every single person in Jerusalem go out to John, get baptized and confess their sins? Does this mean that every single person did this? Or is all here being used in a figurative, representative way? I would hope that we can all agree this is a representative use of the word all. Keep that in mind all the days of your life, especially when you're discussing with friends and neighbors the concept of salvation. Mark uses all to describe the response of a representative group of people to preach to the preaching of John. His preaching was known and it was popular, and it was the cool thing to go hear. And what did they hear? Mark describes a physically unimpressive man, John the Baptist, preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The essence of John's preaching is seen in Mark 1.7, where John makes clear, he is a nobody, but Jesus, Jesus is the promised Messiah. John knew his place in the plan of God He was the voice of one crying to a rebellious group of people. He was also the one who was blessed to be called on to baptize Jesus in obedience. We read in Mark 1.9. Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him, Jesus. Our text in John 119 takes place the day before Jesus returns to Bethany beyond the Jordan after enduring those 40 days of temptation by Satan in the wilderness, The Apostle John does not record the baptism of Jesus by John because he is most concerned with the confessions and the witnessing and the testimony of the Baptist. Turn back in your Bibles then to John chapter 1, verse 19. The ministry of John the Baptist, friends, was extremely unique. William Hendrickson says... His austere mode of life, stern preaching, and emphasis upon the fact that even the sons of Abraham are in need of thorough repentance and spiritual cleansing caused a mighty stir among the people of Israel. Jewish people were coming out in large numbers to hear John's message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And no small number of them were being baptized to prepare their hearts for the arrival of the Messiah. This was a huge deal. Within a two year period of time, two men, both right at the age of 30, both born to parents by supernatural circumstances, which were foretold through angelic visitation, both men spent time in the wilderness with God and have come into the area of Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, with the same message from God repent and believe. Who would not be talking? about John the Baptist, at least John the Baptist, and certainly in the days after Jesus. Where has anything like this ever happened before in human history? How could this escape anyone's attention? It could not. R.C. Sproul says, suddenly, the office of prophet was renewed with this strange and bizarre figure who came forth from the desert, the traditional meeting place between God and his prophets, to begin a radical prophetic ministry. In a very short time, John the Baptist's activity attracted widespread attention. He was saying to Israel, the Messiah is about to arrive, but you are not ready to receive him. You, the people of Israel, are unclean." What was the response to John the Baptist on the part of the people? The people responded very positively to John's message, confessing their sins and receiving from him the baptism of repentance. So positively did the people respond to John that the Jewish elite... They had to take notice of this man they considered a heretic and a false teacher. And so they sent men out to confront this guy, John the Baptist. You see that there in the text in 119 where John says, The Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him the question. Who are you, man? What are you doing? Who are you? Explain yourself. The title Jews is used very frequently by John and can have a good, neutral, and most often a hostile sense, depending on the context. Leon Morris says, Much more often, John uses Jews to denote Jewish people hostile to Jesus. It does not necessarily denote the whole nation. In fact, characteristically, it means the Jews of Judea specifically, especially those in and around Jerusalem. And not infrequently, it refers to the leaders of the nation of Israel. The Jewish leaders of Israel sent priests and Levites out to John, Who are these men, the priests and the Levites? Well, John MacArthur helps us with that. He says the priests were the human intermediaries between God and man and officiated at the religious ceremonies in Jerusalem. The Levites themselves, they assisted the priests in the temple rituals. Since the temple police force was made up of Levites, they likely served as a security detachment to protect the priests of this delegation. You see, if you're going to go confront a man about his ministry and thousands of people are enjoying it, What do you expect to have happen? There might be a riot. Friends, this is a hostile, territorial issue that's happening in the text. The religious elites in Jerusalem are not content with some guy coming in and stealing sheep from their flock by selling a message that uses the same themes and motifs that they know so well from the Old Testament scriptures. And moreover, they feel threatened because of the genuine and humble nature of John's person and his ministry. Add to this, John's message was, repent. What do you know from the word repent? Repent means something went wrong. But John didn't go to Jerusalem to share what was wrong with the Jewish elites. No, he didn't do that. He took his message to the people who had been lied to and misled for years by failed leadership and evil shepherds. At this point, the Jews have come out to run John off of their territory, just like we've seen the Trump presidential campaign do everything they can in their power to undermine, reject, and run off any presidential campaign by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The Trump campaign has been forced into action against DeSantis because of the groundswell of support that common American citizens are giving to the Florida governor because of the content of his message matching the righteousness of God. Men and women must always contend with this issue. The issue is who, friends, is speaking the righteousness of God? Who? 2,000 years ago it was John the Baptist. The people were listening. And John the Baptist was speaking righteousness. His message was a righteous message and it was a direct assault on the religious leaders of Israel because they were not leading their people in paths of righteousness or repentance. And they were not ready to receive the Lord's Messiah. John's message struck the hearts of so many in Israel that they were openly, if even ignorantly, questioning whether or not John himself was, in fact, the Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verse 15 says, The people were in a state of expectation, and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he himself was the Christ. The tension between John the Baptist And the Jews, at this moment in history, was palpable. You could see it, you could feel it on the personalities, on the people involved. So the Jews sent out a low-ranking delegation of intel-gathering priests and their brute squad, the Levites, to conduct official business on behalf of the religious elite in Jerusalem, who wanted to put this little twerp, this know-nothing, this messiah wannabe, to put him out of business, to run him out of town. D.A. Carson says, Granted, the wide influence the Baptists exerted, it would have been irresponsible for the leaders of Jerusalem if they had failed to check this man out and get an answer out of him. The Apostle John marches his audience directly into one of the most intense and contentious moments this generation has ever seen in John chapter 1, verse 19. The confrontation between the Jews and John the Baptist. This confrontation takes place on day one, of what I call Word Witness Week, WWW. Word Witness Week. This is a full week of witnessing about the Word that you just read about in verses 1 through 18. This is Word Witness Week, and this is day one. Day one results in two confessions from John the Baptist. Positively, John is going to answer the two biggest questions on the minds of the Jews on day one. Their questions are, number one, Who are you? And number two, what are you doing? Today we're gonna focus our attention on day one, confession one, question one. Who are you? Next week we'll look at day one, confession two, question two. What are you doing? But for today, we need to see from our text, the Apostle John records two hostile inquiry answers, two hostile inquiry answers which explained the Baptist's person and his ministry. It is here in the text that John captures two concise confessions. Two concise confessions from the Baptist that paved the road to belief in Jesus. What two concise confessions from the Baptist paved the road to belief in Jesus? First, we see John confesses, number one, negatively, who I am not. Second, we see John confesses, number two, positively who I am." These two concise confessions. Number one, negatively who I am not. And number two, positively who I am. John answers all of the hostile questions asked by the Jews by telling them both negatively and positively who he is and who he is not. We cannot afford to miss John's great purpose in answering these intense questions. John's ultimate desire is to shed light on the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. John is just the snowplow, friends. John is just the snowplow clearing the highway for other travelers to travel safely away from their crimson red sins into the whitest snow forgiveness of the soon arriving Lord Jesus Christ. We see John respond first negatively to the intense, hostile questioning of the Jews who have asked him, who are you? when the Apostle John records in John 1.20, and he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. There's not another place in the Gospel of John as emphatic as this response, which is seen in the way that the Apostle John stacks three verbs together to fully emphasize just how forcefully John offered this confession and this denial. R.C. Sproul says, John utilizes the strongest possible method in the Greek to show how emphatic John the Baptist was in saying, I'm not the Christ. John MacArthur says, this verb stacking by the Apostle John emphasizes the vehemence of the Baptist denial. Now, why is there need to be so vehement, so forceful, so emphatic, and so strong in this negative response? Would you turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4? If you go to Matthew and you turn to the left, two pages, it should be Malachi, you'll be at chapter 4. The reason for the Apostle John to be so awkwardly emphatic is because even though the Jewish delegation didn't ask, are you the Christ? This thought of the Christ was the biggest reason for their visit. Messianic overtones surrounded this visit from the Jews. John knew all about the Messianic conversations that the regular people were having which most certainly got back to the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. Was this man, John the Baptist, the Messiah? Everyone wanted to know. And that was the nature of the Jews' first question. The very nature of the question was, where are you at with this Messiah complex? But they asked it without asking about the Messiah. The Baptist welcomed the chance. He welcomed the chance to get the Messiah issue off the table. And it's at this point we arrive at the first of two concise confessions. We see, number one in your notes, first, negatively, who I am not. To be sure, more negative answers are coming, but this first answer is the supreme negative answer that everyone wanted to hear from John. John is not the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. He is not the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah 42. He is not the promised branch of Isaiah 4 or Jeremiah 23. He is not the mediator and healer promised in Job 33. He is not the heavenly high priest from Zechariah 6, nor is he the coming king from Zechariah 9. You're in Malachi 4.2, where we can easily see that John the Baptist is not himself the son of righteousness described here when Yahweh, through the prophet Malachi, says in chapter 4, verse 2 of Malachi, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and judgments which I command him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. John the Baptist is not the son of righteousness, but what about this Elijah guy? The promise from four five of Malachi. John the Baptist proclaimed with great intensity that he is not Yahweh's Messiah, but now he's got to contend with Malachi 4.5. You remember these words from Malachi 4 are the last words that the Lord gave to national Israel from a prophet of Yahweh for the previous 400 years. And you recall in the Gospel of John, they ask next, at chapter 1, verse 21, they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? They want to know, are are you the guy prophesied by Malachi? Are you actually Elijah the prophet? Turning your Bibles to Matthew 11. turning your Bibles to Matthew 11. The priests and the Levites need to give John a full inspection and a complete examination. And so they come with this question. Are you Elijah? And it makes perfect sense for the Jews to ask this. For those of you who are not familiar with Elijah the prophet, you can find Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings chapter 18... And chapter 21, Elijah was a bold man whose ministry was loaded with confrontation. Confrontation with false prophets, with King Ahab, with Queen Jezebel, and others. The story of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 is perhaps the most famous. Elijah challenged 450 false prophets to a worship off. You could say it was the Super Bowl of Sacrifice at Mount Carmel. The Super Bowl of Sacrifice would be won by the first team of prophets to have their God deliver fire from heaven and consume the sacrifices on their altar. The prophets of Baal and the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah. Team A, team B. There was no coin toss to decide who goes first. Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. As you would guess, they failed. No fire from heaven rained down on their altar. Elijah mocked them in 1 Kings 18, 27. He said to them, call out with a louder voice for he is a God, right? Now either he is occupied or he's relieving himself or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And Then before calling on Yahweh to deliver fire from heaven, Elijah soaked his own offering by pouring four pitches of water Three times on his altar, on the offering, and on the wood around it, saturated with water. And yet immediately after calling on Yahweh to answer his prayer and to send fire from heaven to consume the offering on the altar that he had made, Elijah's prayer was immediately answered. 1 Kings 18.38 records, "...then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench." The Lord delighted himself in the ministry of the span Elijah even to the extent that when it was Elijah's turn to leave earth and to go be with God in heaven forever Elijah did not die. 2 Kings chapter 2:11 records as Elijah and his protégé Elisha were going along and talking behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and it separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. The Jews knew the story very well. Elijah himself never physically died. and he was promised by Malachi to come back. And so the Jews ask, "Was John the Baptist the reincarnate Elijah the prophet?" You'll remember from our text that John the Baptist makes a second denial. John, chapter one, verse 21, and he says, "And he said, "I am not. I am not Elijah." John the Baptist is not physically Elijah. There are two, these men are two entirely different men with different personalities, different purposes, different ministries, in as much as they look a lot alike, kind of ratty, need a leather belt to wear around your tunic, pull you in tight. You're in Matthew 11, verse 7. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to weigh in on the character in the ministry of John the Baptist, saying to a crowd that has gathered, in verse 7 of Matthew 11, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes. Yes, you did. I tell you. And the one who is more than a prophet? This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you, which is Malachi 3.1. Truly, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, john the baptist himself is elijah who was to come turn in your bibles to luke chapter one luke chapter one what we just read in matthew 11 is a phenomenal admission on jesus part and a most incredible interpretation on jesus part of malachi 4 6 prophecy now whenever you have jesus interpreting scripture you know that you are handling pure gold. But how is this verse gold? When John the Baptist told the Jews emphatically, I'm not Elijah. John MacArthur says this, Jesus interpreted Malachi's prophecy as referring to one similar to Elijah and not to the prophet himself. It is not the case that Yahweh was sending back Elijah in person in the flesh. Rather, one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like the angel Gabriel said when he spoke to John the Baptist's father in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Luke records the words of the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah in the temple when he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, this is the angel now speaking to Zechariah in the temple. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will not drink any wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you see, brothers and sisters? Gabriel is saying that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecies of Malachi 4, 6 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Not to mention, Gabriel plainly establishes the power and the sovereignty of God over every aspect of creation right down into the womb where Yahweh not only places people there by name according to his choice, but further still, he can grace them with salvation and the Holy Spirit while they are in utero. Little people in utero. Friends, this is great news. The sovereign God of the universe knew John the Baptist. He placed him in Elizabeth's womb. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. You'd think that if salvation had something to do with human free will, the angel Gabriel would have said something about John the Baptist choosing in his heart to accept the salvation that God was offering to him while he was there in the womb. But that's just not the case, is it? The good news of the gospel is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And nothing, nothing can stop him from freely applying his salvation of his own free will to whomever he has chosen, regardless of how wicked and cruel you have been in your life, or in John's case, how little and insignificant he seemed when he was in his mother's womb. God knows the details, friends, of every human life and has elected John the Baptist for salvation and for his forerunner ministry and mission from eternity past. In order to fulfill the forerunner purposes, John the Baptist was destined to have this major confrontation with the Jews at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Moreover, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to respond with accuracy and truth that troubled and confounded the priests and the Levites. They've asked him, who are you? They've asked him, are you Elijah? And then third, we see in John 121, as you will remember, when they ask, are you the prophet? He answered, no. Where did this question come from? Are you the prophet? And why did John dismiss this question in a single word answer? You're in Deuteronomy 8.15, where Moses has taken Israel as far as the Lord will allow him to go to the plains of Moab, which are just east of the Jordan River. I hope you can see this in your mind on a map, right? You've got the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and you've got Moab off to the right in the east, and Jerusalem is there to the left of the Dead Sea, just up the hill a little ways. This is where Moses is at, he's on the plains of Moab, off on the right-hand side there, just to the east of the Jordan. Because this is literally within miles of Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist is being confronted by the Jews. Here in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is telling Israel what they can expect when he is dead and gone in order that they may pass on the hope of heaven for a coming Messiah to each and every successive generation of Israelites. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, they're on the plains of Moab, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers who shall listen to him. This is according to all you asked of Yahweh your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. They said that because they wanted personal relationship. And so we see in verse 17, And Yahweh said to me, They have spoken well to want personal relationship. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like them, or like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them All that I command him. All of Israel had been expecting a prophet like Moses. A prophet promised by Yahweh who would speak the words of Yahweh. The Jews needed to know definitively, are you the prophet? The one, the promised one from Deuteronomy 18. The prophet that was promised by Yahweh through Moses on the plains of Moab before Joshua crossed the Jordan and charged into Israel and took the land captive. Are you that guy? John the Baptist was ready and happy to answer for a third time, and again in the negative, and the answer is no. Leon Morris says, The increasing curtness of John's successive answers should not be missed. It appears to stem from a dislike that John has for answering questions about himself. He had come to bear witness about another no, 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 John the Baptist has said. No, you Jews, you don't understand who I am and what I'm all about. You have me all wrong. You, Jews, have failed ideas and expectations of what God has said and what God is going to do through me, John the Baptist. Turn back in your Bibles now to John chapter 1, verse 22. John 1, 22. You can imagine the frustration of these priests and these Levites who have showed up to get answers, they've gotta be thinking to themselves, did we come all this way for nothing? Why are we out here wasting our time with this fool? This guy has nothing to offer us, he is a total clown. Perhaps some of them wanted to leave quickly and get back to Jerusalem to report their whole of their trip amounted to a big nothing burger. But it seems a few of the Jews weren't ready to leave. Perhaps they could feel the sting of going back to Jerusalem and reporting to their superiors, their elite religious leaders, hey, all we've got is John said, no, no, no. That didn't sell well with them. These are good employees. They want more. They want more answers. They seem to know better than to take back these three negative denials. And so they turn the floor over to John, and they give him a chance to make a positive confession. Come on, John. Tell us something of value. These denials that you're giving us, they're they're worthless for what our job is, our mission. Please say something that will make some sense of your crazy baptism ministry." John MacArthur says, "'Frustrated by John's string of terse, negative replies, and out of obvious options, the exasperated members of the delegation, they shift gears." Leon Morris says, "'The questioners were in a difficult position, So far, all that they had elicited from John had been a string of denials. They had no positive statement to put into their report. And so we read in John 1.22. John 1.22. Therefore, they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Again, whenever a man is given the floor to speak, It is so critical to hear what he uses with his words, how he chooses his words. For instance, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley once said to his 38,000 member multi-site congregation in Atlanta, Georgia, he said, quote, here is what I think. The Bible says that phrase, the Bible says. That's not an adequate phrase or an adequate starting point for many adults on their faith journey. He says that he grew up in a house because his dad was a pastor and he was a PK where he learned about inerrancy, infallibility, and the authority of scripture and he was trained to know all that and he believed all that. But after 27 years of preaching, he says, Andy Stanley, that many, he says this quote, many adults would tell you, I grew up with what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my job. Let me tell you about my divorce. Let me tell you about my children." End quote. That's what he shared with his congregation. With these words, Andy Stanley is confessing that the word of God is not his greatest source of hope and identity. He is confessing a brand of Christianity that is built on emotion, and experience, not biblical principle and objective truth. This brand of Christianity confesses a false Jesus. It's a made-up Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't value Scripture. We see just the opposite from John the Baptist in John 1.23 as we arrive at the second of two concise confessions of John. The second of two concise confessions of John is when John doesn't talk negatively when John speaks positively and John says positively, number two in your notes, positively who I am. This is positively who I am. John the Baptist finds his identity in Scripture. He quotes Scripture. He trusts Scripture. He has found that he is actually in the text of Scripture, written 700 years before he was conceived in his mother's womb. We read in John 123, John the Baptist said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now John is quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he is giving these Jews a Bible lesson in messianic prophecy. Don't they know that Messiah will have a forerunner? Haven't they read Isaiah 40? It's such an incredible chapter for Jews to read. If you've ever read Isaiah, you slug it out for 39 chapters, just getting hammered with judgment, judgment. And the Lord, just like the Bible's divided 39 and 27, the Lord, 39, 27, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, starting with Isaiah 40, the last 27 chapters. Glory to God. God is going to send hope and a rescue. Had they never read about the hope and the rescue? Chapter 40, everything hinges on it. And it comes with a messenger. This is more than a Bible lesson for these men. John is interpreting the fulfillment of the text of Isaiah 43, which alone can be done by revelation from God. Certainly his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, would have shared with him what was spoken to them by the angel Gabriel, that he was sent by God to be a forerunner for the Messiah. But John had heard this message from God himself. You see it in John 1.33. John one thirty three. he says, John the Baptist does, God the Father sent me to baptize people with water, and God spoke to me. He told me personally that Messiah will have the Spirit descend on him like a dove when he is baptized. The Baptist spoke with God. He spent time in the wilderness, and he spoke with God. That's a bold claim, to say that you spoke with God. That's what the man said. Placing himself in Isaiah 43, that's a bold claim. Confessing that his ministry is preparatory for the arrival of Messiah, that's a bold claim. John the Baptist effectively said, You know this Messiah guy that you're longing to see come from heaven to earth? Yeah, I know the guy. He's here on earth, he's walking among you, but you don't know who he is yet. I baptized him about 40 days ago. He took off into the wilderness. And when he gets back, pretty soon, maybe in a day or two, by then, y'all better repent. That's my message to you. I know the guy. Y'all better repent. Make straight the way of the Lord. This means to prepare the path, to clear any obstacle, to allow for passage However, the obstacles that need to be cleared are not downed trees or overgrown bushes. The obstacles to be cleared are pride, sin, rebellion, hard heartedness, and a lack of faith in the Word of God. A lack of faith in the promises of God found repeated in His Word. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Leon Morris says. John understood the words of Isaiah 40, verse 3, as a clarion call to the nation. He was not concerned with himself and with his own safety at all. He was trying to prepare the way of the Lord by getting people ready to meet the Lord. Brothers and sisters, John the Baptist staked his life, his very existence, on the truthfulness of one verse in Isaiah. He allowed himself to be entirely defined by Scripture and God's choice of him. And what did this give John the Baptist? That his identity was bound and wound and twisted up together with Isaiah 40, verse 3. What did this give this man? What did did he have inside of his heart and his mind and his person at the core of his being? What did he have that you want, that you need to live in this sin sick world? What did he have that you don't? because he anchored his life on a passage from the Old Testament that gave him identity. What did he have? Confidence, boldness, certainty, and assurance. He had these things. Did they come by way of him grasping them with his own hand, or did they come by way of his mind being renewed to look at the Word of God, to embrace it as true? placing all of his faith and his trust, that Yahweh's word is accurate, trustworthy. that this is where all of life should find its source. It's in the latter, isn't it? Not in His own hand, in the word of God. His life belonged to the Lord. His job was to be faithful to the salvation and ministry that God had placed upon him. And this man was faithful. All four gospel writers recognized the incredible significance and the effectiveness of John's confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read earlier in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus himself said to John the Baptist, he said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, we have spent our morning looking at day one, of the Word Witness Week, we have looked at confession number one, which goes to John the Baptist, who confessed and did not lie, but he confessed negatively that he is not the Christ, positively that he is the forerunner of Messiah. We could call this the prophetic confession, but I think maybe a better title is to call this the forerunner confession. This is the day one forerunner confession. John knows exactly who he is and what he is supposed to be doing in his life to honor God, to bring glory to God and to find his own source of joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction, happiness. His joy was confessing Jesus as Messiah. His joy is confronting the Jews. His joy is calling sinners to repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, this is John the Baptist. Who are you? Where does your identity come from? your YouTube videos, your Facebook posts, Instagram, a pair of shoes, a job, a nice clean iron shirt, a nice clean car in the middle of winter. It's the only one in the parking lot that's been freshly washed. Are you held hostage to an identity built on your past sins and failures? Are you held hostage to an identity built on other people's sins against you. Is that what identifies you? What did you do? What what did others do to you that causes that to be your identity as as opposed to an identity that comes out of Scripture? Who are you? What does Scripture say about you? What verses have you memorized that speak to who you are? Does the Word of God have the ability to identify you? Right where you are today. And not just in this room. I'm talking about when you leave here and drive home in your car alone and go into your house and sit down and you think about these questions. Does Scripture identify you there? In your house? In your car? Does the Word of God have the ability to identify you? What is your identity in relation to Messiah? The call of your life today is to answer the question biblically who are you? What does your life confess about your relationship to Messiah? You've turned in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 10 with you because Paul here has words for us that firmly help to establish identity. If you're ever asked this question who are you? What do you confess about yourself? I sure hope that you would think on these words. I'm going to paraphrase this a bit so that you can take ownership of this. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace I have been saved through faith, and this not of myself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that I will never personally boast. For I am His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that I would walk in them. Is that how you understand yourself? Is that your identity? That's one of my favorite identity verses. If not that one, I think of Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of all of us unto him. What verse ties you to your identity in Christ? Do you have one? What is it? Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you and rejoice as we think on the life of John the Baptist, the greatest man born among men, born of women, born among men, this man, John the Baptist. He was one who confessed. He bore witness. He testified. He was an evangelist he was concerned about people's sins and their forgiveness of their sins and the proclamation of this one called messiah christ father i pray that each and every one of my brothers and sisters here would live in light of the reality that messiah has come that we have received salvation and as a result that we would have boldness like john the baptist to proclaim your name and all the excellencies that go with it and that that boldness would extend right into our own personal lives. That each and every day in the sin-sick world, we don't get lost, troubled, despairing, depressed, anxious, fearful, worried, full of doubt. That all of those things can be thrown away in a moment because of one verse out of the Bible that identifies us accurately. Let that be the case for all of my brothers and sisters. We pray this in Christ's name.